You sound like you're down a 600-foot hallway and whispering. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is brought to you by Braintree. If you're a developer or manager of a mobile app and searching for the right payments API, check out Braintree. Braintree's new V0 SDK makes it easy to support multiple mobile payment types with one simple integration. To learn more and to try out their sandbox, go to braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 173 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Okay, I guess AJ's mute button is working a little too well. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I got a quick uh, reminder or announcement, and that is that we are doing Angular Remote Conf. So if you are looking for an online conference about AngularJS, go to angularremoteconf.com and you can sign up. We have early bird tickets through August 25th, so uh, make sure you get those because after the early bird, the price goes up. We also have a special guest this week. And before I tell you who it is, this is the person who I went to when I started podcasting, and he encouraged me to start podcasting. So that's why you listen to me every week. It's Greg Pollock. Do you want to int- you introduce yourself? <laughs> I thought you just did. <laughs> you well, want me to introduce myself? Well, I, c- I can give you all kinds of background. I mean, I remember listening to Rails Envy way back in the day, and the videos that you and Jason did, where they were, what were they, Envy casts? Where you had... Oh, uh, yeah. Hi, Those I'm were the Rails. First time we like paid yeah. for, we created paid videos. But yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, it started with Rails Envy doing Ruby on Rails development. Did the Rails Envy podcast? I'm excited to talk to Greg because I guess like Code School or Envy Labs is where I was like one of the very first places I went to do Rails Girls like two years ago when I started to program. Oh, cool. Or Rails Bridge. It was Rails Bridge, not Rails Girls. So actually, in Envy Envy Labs offices. 
Yeah, it was in Orlando. I don't know if they're still there, but I drove like the four hours from Savannah over to there just because I was desperate for something. <laughs> but everybody was so nice. So it was cool. No way. Yeah, That's awesome. it was so cool. Like, I think probably two and a half-ish years ago now, I drove down there from Savannah uh, because they didn't have anything like that in Savannah. And I was, like, brand new. I had just heard of Rails and barely programmed anything in my life and just thought it would be an awesome opportunity. And everybody there was so nice. Oh, that's awesome. That's great to hear. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So most people are probably more familiar with you from code school. Yeah, probably. These days I do three things. I help, you know, advise um, NV Labs and, you know, still the consultancy still going strong. And I'm the CEO of Code School, um, which was acquired by Pluralsight a few months ago. And then I also run something called Starter Studio, which is a three-month technical accelerator down here in Orlando that I started about two and a half years ago to help entrepreneurs. So I do a lot of startup advising these days, less programming, but, you know, I try to get my hands dirty where I can. So did Code School start with Rails for Zombies? Um, yeah, you know, I, I like to say that Code School was me figuring out how to monetize the kind of content that I really enjoyed creating. So, you know, the way I always got consulting work was creating educational content. Started with a blog, went on from there to a podcast, then I'd go and speak at conferences, then I'd put, you know, then I would do online videos. And before Rails for Zombies, about a year prior, I put out like some official Rails 3 videos that were on the official Rails blog, I mean, official Rails website. And after putting those out, I realized I needed something to create something more basic because there wasn't enough, you know, ways people could get started. So I came up with the idea of looking at TryRuby, you know, which was an interactive online step-by-step tutorial and asked, well, what, what would happen if I combined the kind of videos that I enjoyed producing with the interactivity of TryRuby? What would TryRails look like? And so what we ended up creating was Rails for Zombies, which was just a free thing for the community. Another one of those free things that, you know, I knew would lead to more consulting work, but Rails for Zombies just got so much positive feedback. So many people loved it that we realized, okay, we're going to have to do this again. And maybe this time we'll charge for it. And so that's where sort of Code School evolved from. Very cool. And now you have courses in JavaScript and databases. And, and, and HTML, CSS. Yeah. yeah, databases, a ton of different topics. Very nice. So for those courses, how do you guys decide on what courses to put out and kind of the content for them? Because there are so many other things similar to that. And as I was learning... I did kind of prefer you guys over some of the other options. So. Yeah, that's a good question. We mostly just listen to our paying customers. You know, it's kind of like what you're supposed to do, figure out what topics to teach. So we every year around October, November, we send out a huge survey to like all of our customers, paid and unpaid, to really get a gauge for what people want us to teach. And we kind of, you know, need to look at that so that we're teaching some of the most, you know, wanted topics. And it's certainly been interesting since we're on JavaScript Jabber here over the last three years to see how much JavaScript has grown. It's been ridiculous because obviously we started in the Ruby and Rails community, but as we've added new JavaScript courses, that's become our most popular path is JavaScript. So we're always working on new JavaScript courses because of that. So what are the topics that people are requesting these days? 
I, I know you just released an Angular course not too long ago. Yeah, we released our second Angular course. We got a free Angular course, and then we're doing a we've got a paid Angular course. Last month, we had a really fun course, regular expressions. We did a regex course, um, which is a lot of fun if you can think about, you know, how we teach stuff in a very interactive and fun way. So you start typing a regular expression and we interactively help you learn about it. Coming up later this month, we have a um, web animations course. So, you know, allowing you to figure out, you know, how to use CSS to make web pages that are more usable and more animated. So that's going to be a lot of fun. What else? Right now, I'm actually working with a, um, a UX designer so that we can actually do a, like a product design slash web design course, which is really going to be teaching you the best practices of how you do design. We've got one other design course, which we did a few years ago called the fundamentals of design, which goes into things, you know, like color, choosing the right fonts, layout, grid design, all the stuff that, you know, even as a programmer, that even if you, you know, are mostly in the back end or mostly front end, it's really good to know, you know, some good layout because inevitably you're going to need to do a little bit of it here or there. So I'm excited about sort of those two courses that are coming out. What else do we have going on? We've got kind of a future of JavaScript course where we're going into, what is it called these days? ECMAScript 2015 or something like that. I don't <laughs> remember. So that's yeah. a running joke on the show. What's what it's called. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. OK. Well, yeah. So we're actually creating a course that's going into all of the new cool features of, uh, of JavaScript, which I'm sure your audience would be interested in. That's coming out in the next few months. Now, a lot of these kind of have a storyline behind them or, you know, at least some interest behind them. I mean, Rails for Zombies is a real example of that where. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of progress through things and it's all interactive. So how do you come up with sort of the plot or the story that people are going to follow through the course? It's a lot of fun brainstorming, really. And we get together and some of it's informed by topics that designers are just really interested in designing for. And some of it's just fits in with the theme. For example, we were just trying to figure out, um, we recently hired a Python teacher. So we're asking ourselves, which theme should the Python courses be? Then it came to me and I was like, wait a second, this is Python. It has to be Monty Python, right? It has mm-hmm. to be Monty Python. So we're doing a Monty Python themed uh, two courses there for the uh, web animations course. We kind of took a, we call it like Sweet Lands. It's almost like an adventure time theme. It's kind of fun. For the web design course that's coming up, we decided to take a, a page out of the uh, Breaking Bad handbook, if you're a fan of the TV show, and it's going to be kind of themed around, you know, chemistry and the elements, because I think the title of the course is The Elements of Web Design. So, um, and you know, our goal for Code School, when you come and check us out, we want you to feel like you're um, opening the door and walking into a, a GameStop, right? We want you to feel like you're walking into a GameStop, not a boring library where you have to pick a book off the shelf, right? We want you to feel like you're playing. And, you know, we take that so far as, you know, we use gamification terms because I know that, like, if somebody told me that I had to, like, take a chapter and then take a quiz at the end, uh, I'm not going to be as interested than if you tell me I can, you know, um, play through a level and then take challenges, Right. So like even the words that we use, along with the themes and the animation, um, it's all around keeping you entertained as much as we can while keeping it extremely educational. Speaking of that, do you think that you try to focus on a different audience or target different people as opposed to like a site like Pluralsight? I guess like even if you're trying to think of uh, like a subscription that a company would pay for, 
Do you ever have issues where the company might be more willing to pay for something like Pluralsight and they kind of maybe are a little hesitant because of Code School having um, like this entertainment aspect too? That's a really good question. Um, I honestly haven't heard a lot of people talk about the entertainment aspect of it being a detractor. But if you're looking at those two products, like Pluralsight and Code School are two very, very different products. Pluralsight, you know, those guys release several courses a day. We record, historically, we release one course a month. Right. So the way developers use it is very different. Developers primarily use Pluralsight as a reference library, right? It's more like Stack Overflow. Like when you run into a problem or you need to learn, you know, this new tool that's a part of this other framework and you need a, to reference a big library, then you go to Pluralsight. You type in, you search for it, you find the topic, you watch the video, or at least just the part of the video you need to learn, and then you move on. Like, you know, you went searching for a Stack Overflow answer. Whereas with Code School, I mean, we only have just over, you know, around 50 courses. Um, and it's our goal to become the place where you start learning. You know, it's our, it's my hope that the next time you need to learn a new JavaScript framework, you go, well, I could pick up the book. I could read tutorials online, but I know if I go on to codeschool.com, if they've got a course on this, it's going to be the most effective use of my time. I'm going to be able to get up to speed quickest and my odds of failure are low. You know, I tend to find that, you know, if you're, if you're picking up something new, especially technology, if you're going to fail, if you're going to get frustrated, odds are it's going to happen in the first 15 minutes when, you know, you can't install it right, can't configure it right, and you're missing a dumb semicolon somewhere. So um, at Code School, we try to take out that frustration of getting started so that by the end of a, one of our four-hour courses, you feel like you have a confidence. You feel like, oh, oh, wow, I guess I can do this. It wasn't as hard as I thought. And then you might have the patience to go and watch a few more hours on Pluralsight because you know you have the fluency and that it is possible for you to learn. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's kind of the way that I've used it in the past. I was curious if that was kind of the goal in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you structure your courses so that they reach that endpoint where people are now, okay, now I get this enough to go kind of take the next level? Yeah, because certainly, you know, when you take a topic like JavaScript, for example, or even Angular or even Backbone, and you want to do it justice on a course, there's a certain urge as a developer who likes to be explicit to think, okay, well, in order to do this piece justice, I need to tell everything that people need to know. <laughs> you know, I need to mm-hmm. write a book. But the way I look at it is Code School, our courses, I like to think of our courses at the first like four or five chapters of a book. So when you get into a course, you know, we split it up into quick five to 10 minute videos. So you might have, you know, anywhere between, you know, eight to 12 of these five to 10 minute videos, which teach you one or two topics, not too complex because we, you know, you all can hold too many thoughts in your mind at the same time. And then, you know, after you take a, after you, you watch a video, we immediately get you coding right there in the browser, you know, like Code Academy or Code.org. We have you program right there in the browser to demonstrate the skills that you understood the skills that we just taught you. And, you know, gamify it, give you points, give you badges when you get to the end of a level. But it's really in that format that we can deliver the most effective learning, I think. And what's really interesting is if you take multiple courses of ours, you'll notice that the interface is often different between courses because we try to find the most efficient way to teach any given programming language or framework. And often those different things need different interfaces for learning. 
For example, if you're learning Git, you need a command line. You need to be learning on the command line. If you're learning Angular, you want to be able to type in some JavaScript code and see what happens. If you're learning HTML and CSS, you need something far more visual. So when you're typing CSS or HTML, you actually see live what your code is doing. So we have all these different interfaces for all these different languages so we can produce the best way to get started learning any given technology. I can see how that would work for, say, JavaScript on the front end. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about if you have a course for Node.js or Ruby or something that doesn't run natively in the browser? Oh, yeah. We do have two Node courses. They're phenomenal. We also have, yeah, one of them is an Express course. So um, we teach Node and then Express. It's a great way to get started with that technology if you're interested. And it's the same format. You know, we, you learn and you code right there in the browser. You code JavaScript and we validate all your code. So I mean, that's the other thing that, you know, us programmers like to geek out about is uh, if you're on our website and you submit some code, what happens? Well, if it's a JavaScript course, it could be getting executed on the client side, you know, right there in the browser if you type it right. But when it comes to anything server side, we've got all sorts of sandboxes on our side. So we take your code when you type it in, we run unit tests against it, we test the behavior, and if you get it right, then uh, you see that in the browser and you move on to the next challenge. Yeah, but isn't it, I guess you said you have sandboxes, I was going to say, but isn't it dangerous to execute somebody's code randomly on your backend server? Oh, sure. It can be dangerous if you're not secure in the right ways. And certainly that's been a fun challenge over the years to make sure whether it's Ruby or JavaScript or something else that we are properly sandboxing things so you can't uh, get in and hack the system. And there's all sorts of creative ways that we do that. I was just looking up in case your listeners are interested, we actually have open sourced our client-side JavaScript runner. So if you Google for, or you can put in the show notes, it's called, I don't know how to pronounce it. No, I should have asked somebody. It's pronounced Absidiary, I think is how it's pronounced. You can check it out in the show notes. But it basically is what we use to execute client-side code, client-side JavaScript code, and write tests using Mocha to really find out uh, if you are answering the questions right. And that's also what's running on uh, JavaScript.com. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to segue into that. I guess you did that for me. Uh, When we were first contacted about having you on the show, they were saying, yeah, have the creator of JavaScript.com on the show. (laughs) And uh, I went and looked at it, and it's it's kind of the same thing. I mean, it's a progression through kind of the basic things that you're going to want to know to do JavaScript. Mm -hmm. First of all, how did you get the domain JavaScript.com? You know, honestly, it was just a domain broker kind of just showed up. He showed up one day and said, hey, I've got this domain, javascript.com. Are you interested? And I said, how much do you want? And he said, six figures. And I said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of went back and said, that's a great domain. JavaScript's a great language. You know, any chance I could convince you to go back to your client and tell them what we might do with it. And so I kind of detailed like that we would use the website for good. We wouldn't be selling things on javascript.com. We would use it as a starting point to try to do our best to represent the language. And I said, given that, do you think your clients would be willing to go down in price? And luckily, they said, yeah. They said, sure, that sounds actually good, and we'll be able to go lower than that. And the reason there's a good reason why we're able to spend a good amount of money on these types of domains, and that's because historically, if you look at, I mean, because you know, Rails for Zombies was the first free course that we put out there and it generated enough traffic and it's still free but 
people sign up for CodeSchool accounts, and some of those end up going on to becoming CodeSchool subscribers. And because of that, we can attribute that free property to generating enough revenue. And we've done that over and over and over again um, with websites like Try jQuery, where we've got uh, you know people learning stuff free. And yeah, so it's only because we've done that over and over again that we can attribute kind of a big monetary value to a free property. Because we know if we buy JavaScript.com, we put free stuff on there, some of those people will go on to convert to be CodeSchool subscribers. So eventually we can get our money back, and we know that we can spend a good amount of money on that property. So it's kind of cool that we can have that confidence to know that we can invest in this, do something for the community, and still, in the long term, get our money back. So is any of that open source? If I wanted to contribute um, like different learning materials or something like that, what's the process for doing that on JavaScript.com? That's a good question. We have a team of volunteers. Um, so some of the people that worked on JavaScript.com kind of are trying to run it for the community. So if you go on there, I think there might be a link to contact us. Right, okay. So if you go to jobs.com and click on about and you click on let us know, you can go on there and you can sort of, you know, uh, talk to the guys about contributing or if you want to add something. And I think they're going to be really liberal about, they have been really liberal about getting feedback. I don't think they've open sourced it yet. They may decide to do that in the future. I don't really see any reason why they wouldn't want to do that. So... They might, and you could encourage them to do that. I encourage you to encourage them to do that. <laughs> so, because that was our purpose of the website, was to create something for the community, and um, we definitely want to make it better. So if it's something you want to help with, definitely get in touch with them. Uh, if you'll notice on there, there's a couple things you'll notice when you go to JavaScript.com. You'll notice that we've got kind of a, a fun tutorial on there that gets you started in the same way that we created, you know, try Git, it's try JavaScript. We push people over to the, our news section where if you have your own JavaScript news, whether it's a library you're working on and you want to spread the word, you can post that for free onto JavaScript.com and let other people know about it. Then we also, you know, plug on there our free podcast where you can listen to the latest news in the JavaScript community or subscribe to our mailing list. So there's also that on there. And then lastly, you know, we realized we wanted to plug a couple of the best resources for getting started with JavaScript. Now, not the best free resources. So on there, we've got a bunch of different ones that you can uh, give it a try. I tried to get my husband to try out the exercises on there. It didn't go as well as I'd hoped. <laughs> oh, no, what happened? Oh, no, it was good, just for some reason. He just can't seem to be bitten by the bug like I was. <laughs> oh, interesting. Trying to force it on him doesn't work. So. <laughs> huh. That's funny. So I have to wonder a little bit, because I definitely have some courses that I've been thinking about putting together, and I like the format of being able to actually type the code in the browser and then just have have it run and have people get the feedback that they need. Mm -hmm. How do you design the exercises? How do you decide, okay, these are the things that they need to use or do, and then these are the exercises we're going to put them through? Oh, yeah. There's a whole process these days. We've gotten really good at it to the point now that we can replicate the process pretty well. And even just the way that we create courses, I could talk about that for days. But you were asking about the challenges. So what we try to do with the challenges is break down the core concepts that we're teaching in each video, right? And then we go through and try to create a storyline, right? So if you had a bunch of different challenges that were all different examples, it'd be kind of you know, rough if you had to learn a new example, a new web application you're building. So first of all, we try to make them follow a step-by-step storyline where you're building a web app and we go through, okay, first step is do this, second step do that. And 
we've got different kinds of challenge types, right? Even if you've taken one of our more recent courses, you might notice that prior to the last year, when you went in to take a coding challenge, it would just have, you know, one description of what to get done. And it would say, ready, go. Right? Now we break down those into different tasks. So you might do a challenge that has four tasks involved. And you're shown the first task and you type, a, you know, one line of code and that shows the first task complete. Then you go to the second task and you type a little code and then the second task complete. So um, we break things down into that so that if, you know, you can make sure that you're doing things step by step rather than having to do, you know, to write five lines of code in order to get it right. There's five tasks and it's one line per task and you're a lot less likely to get stuck and not figure out where to go. Was there any more... When you say like how we put together challenges, can you be a little more specific? So I've done some workshops in the past and mm-hmm. I've actually, you know, I show up and I walk people through it and I, I really like that aspect of things. I think people learn better when I explain something to them and then make them do it, which is the kind of the process that you go through with code school. The thing that I'm really interested in is, okay, so now that I've got this example that I want them to put together or, you know, you're calling it a challenge, the same idea. How do I put that on my website so that people can do that kind of work on my courses? Right. Okay. Well, the first thing that you should know is that you don't necessarily have to do the in-browser thing. I think that there's just as much value in providing people things they download and they run on their own computers. And there's certainly Mm -hmm. ways of doing that. We've done that before with some of our, like even before Rails for Zombies. I think when we did Rails 3 videos, we put together like incomplete you know, applications. And we would make people download the application, go into this directory, and apply what we just taught them in the video. So there's some really good ways that you can actually have the same sort of learn by doing and just requiring people to download the project and run the project and improve the project and tell them, you know, go look at the comments on this line and follow the instructions there. So you can do that same sort of learn by doing thing without having anything in the browser. And I think some people don't realize that. But if you do want to do things in the browser, well, it's going to take a lot of work. (laughs) But if you're doing JavaScript, I think the best place to start is that library I mentioned earlier, Absidiary, because that shows you how we use iframes to really validate people's code. So you would be able to do that. You'd have to combine that with, you know, getting a good editor in there and whatever other designs you would like. But I think that would be a good starting point if you wanted to do it on your own and you're using JavaScript. There's other libraries that we, even some ones that we've open sourced for, I think there's a Ruby one that we open sourced that allows you to run your Ruby code out there. And I also think that um, Codecademy has open sourced some of their in-browser executors as well. So I'm actually really interested in that technical aspect of running code in the browser. Can you talk about any of the technical details of how that's done? You said you throw stuff in an iframe. What, what else do you do? Let's see if I can give a good answer to that, because this is not something that I have worked on. These are other people. So I think the proper answer would be, I am not qualified to answer that question. Um, <laughs> but Epsidiary uses Mocha for running all tests, you know, and you can extend it with common JS style modules. It uh, has like a custom Mocha reporter to get feedback, you know, because obviously you want to take the error results you might get from running the tests and give people more understandable feedback. It also uses something called Chai. You familiar with that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's the uh, behavior-driven development, test-driven development, assertion framework for Node.js. That's, uh, yeah, that was, so we use that with Mocha. But yeah, um, I can't really be too technical with that. But check out Abe Cidieri. 
All right. Thanks. So then as far as, because you said that your courses are basically sort of starter courses, and so you have 8 to 12, what, 8-minute courses or 12-minute courses, or maybe I got the numbers mixed up. But uh, then how do you decide? Courses around uh, about four, three to four hours long based on how you get through it. So how do you decide what to put in and what not to put in? It's difficult because obviously there's a lot to all these different technical topics. So we try to think about what is going to be the most effective uh, use of our time in there, right? What are the most important components to learn when you're just getting started? And also, what can we teach people so they can immediately start building things and get that feeling of success so they can move on, you know, so they get excited so they can pick up that next book? I think so many technical tutorials run into the problem of teaching syntax, 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 right? So it's like level one. Here's the syntax for doing this. Level two. Here's the syntax for doing that. Oh, and you just want to kill yourself. So um, we always try to make it so that, you know, by the end of the course, we're building something together. So by the end of the course, you have all the tools you need to actually construct something. And unfortunately, what that might mean is that you know, there might be six different topics you need to learn in order to build it. So what we'll have to do is we'll have to skim through those six topics to get to that point, not really focusing on any one in very good detail, but that's not important. We need you to get to the point where you can start building as quick as possible because that's how you're going to, we're going to get you feeling successful about building in that particular technology. I really like the approach and you know, it does make it okay then to kind of hand wave over something and say, look, you, you'll understand this maybe a little later, but right now we just want to get you to the point where you can get results. Oh yeah, totally. We have that battle. I mean, it's a constant battle when you're building a course of what you leave in and what you leave out. And we have this whole process around how we create content from the outlines to something we call the course book into slides when we're really hardcore about even teaching with slides. So, I mean, the way that we look at it is you should be able to watch a code schooled video, turn off the volume and still get everything. Everything needs to be represented visually. So that's why we're hardcore with slides because we can arrange things and teach visually so that you don't really have to even listen. Some people are, you know, more auditory learners. They want to hear. Some people are more visual. But there's been research done, and I believe it, that the most effective learning combines the two effectively. And that's really what we strive for. So it seems like there are a lot of companies out there doing online learning for programmers and programming. I'd like to know, where do you see things going from here? You know, because there's Code Academy and Khan Academy and Code School and Pluralsight and Lynda.com has a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I still really think online learning in general is still at its infancy. There are still best practices that are getting established. And the greatest evidence there is looking at, um, if you look at all of the different in-person teaching techniques and you think about how they've gone online, there are some that are still blatantly missing. <laughs> like there's some techniques that are missing and they're just starting to come along right now. Like the mentorship model, like even that, like I don't, it's only recently that that's starting to come online. And I'm, I think it's like, there's only two companies I feel like in the programming space that have some really interesting hybrids. So you've got developer boot camps, right? And you've got Code School, Linda, Pluralsight, all this stuff. But what's in between the two? What is halfway in between? And in my mind, there are two companies that are halfway in between right now and doing it successfully. The first one is thinkful.com, and the second one is block.io. And those companies have mentorship programs. So instead of like a, a boot camp where you're paying probably 
three or four thousand dollars a month. With these websites, you pay a couple hundred dollars a month. And they have a curriculum that you go through and you have a mentor that you meet up with on a weekly basis that helps you through it. And you have a whole support group, right? So it's sort of a hybrid model between a boot camp and a code school. And I feel like there's so much opportunity to figure that out and figure out how you create the optimal learning environment online, right? Because there's so many principles that are missing from code school. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, we just focus on one thing, and we try to do that really well. But it's like, at the end of a code school course, shouldn't you try to build something with what you learned? And if you wanted to create a good learning experience that's similar to the good work environment, you should probably be building something with other people. And meeting other people and building something using that technology and learning from each other. And it's like, oh, nobody's really doing that effectively. There's one idea. There's also like peer review, right? So when you create something, when you write some code, how do you get effectively peer reviewed? And why isn't there a service for that? And how do you do that correctly, right? So there's also things like, you know, air pair, right? So that's, again, that's trying to address the mentorship model online to make it easier for you to find the experts that you need in the nick of time when you need it. Ah, it's so interesting, right? And then Hackhands is another example of that. And that Hackhands actually got, you know, acquired by Pluralsight, just like we did. And then there's also evaluation. How do you figure out if people are qualified to be programming? How do you figure out to be qualified in a certain language? And how do you figure that out quickly? And there was another company that kind of figured that out called Smarterer, if you've heard of them. And Smarterer also got brought into the Pluralsight team. So as you can quite imagine, with these sort of acquisitions, Pluralsight's trying to figure out, the, you know, what does that future of online learning look like and how can we make a dramatic impact and how can we innovate? And there's lots of companies that are doing that and I feel like there's a lot of room left in the space and a lot of innovation that I'm looking forward to. I've noticed with a lot of these tutorials, they seem to gloss over or just not touch on at all best practices and security. And this is something that frustrates me. Like I see jQuery tutorials where they're still teaching to select on the element and do dot click instead of selecting on body and then doing dot on click element. Uh -huh. Or they show concatenating a string and putting that into HTML rather than showing using an HTML escape. And to me, these things seem like if you don't know anything and you're taught the right way, the best practice way, the way that works 100% of the time, that that would be a, a better model. Yet, I don't see tutorials picking up best practices. What are your thoughts on that? And where do you guys stand in that ground? Well, certainly if you find things like that in our courses, please let us know because we always are going back and updating things and improving the courses. So if you see something, let us know because, you know, we go through and improve courses occasionally and want to create the best way to start learning. So certainly. I totally agree, though. You want to make sure you teach people the right way the first time and uh, not teach them the wrong way the first time. And certainly that's a principle that we use when we're creating slides even, right? So you don't want when somebody, when you're learning it for the first way, especially a developer, it gets really frustrating if you're someone te is teaching you a concept and they go, oh, here's, so to, to do this, here's how you do it. Oh, but really that's the wrong way. So you need to add this to, ah, I just want to kill myself. Um, and that's the worst way because you just feel like, okay, I've been focusing on this code 
to learn it. I've been trying to memorize it, and now you're telling me it's the wrong way. It's so annoying. But at the same time, as well, you know, when it comes to more complicated best practices, I mean, there certainly has to have a balance, right? So if I could teach you the best example of that, I can think of is I don't know if your audience will be able to associate, but it's like scaffolding for Rails, right? So you know, in Ruby on Rails, everybody, all the advanced developers would like just hem and haw. About the fact that you could write one line of code to get all this code written for you, and it would just magically appear. And then you would realize, as you got more into it, that it's probably not a best practice to go there. <laughs> But you have to balance that with accessibility, right? So if the best practice way to do it is going to be 20 lines of complex code, the simple and more insecure way of doing it is only two lines of code, and your goal is to get people. Learning and up and running and developing good enough, then well, you might have to skip the best practice and leave that for later, because well, you're going to lose people if you have to teach them 20 lines of code. No one's going to use it; they're all going to go away. Yeah, I like the example of the scaffold mainly because, well, for one, if somebody's using scaffold, what it does is it just generates basic CRUD operations on a data object or a model in Rails. If you're not familiar. And the thing is, is it's not broken. It's not wrong. It's just not always what you want, and so it's not always the best starting point for the code that you're going to write that's going to go into production. But that said, yeah, I mean, if you want a quick example so that people can start fussing with views or fiddling with an existing set of code that you can just hand them that Rails generates for them, then it's a really convenient way to teach people. I think if you're coming down to security or something else, it's going to come around and kick somebody in the head because they're doing something that is legitimately wrong and is, you know, sh shouldn't be done that way ever at all. Then that's a different argument. I would think that with the security stuff, if you introduce how to make something vulnerable, it seems like you could introduce how to secure it at the same time. If you introduce how to concatenate strings at that same moment, you could introduce this is how you escape a string. Yeah, I agree. I think too. At some point, it's a little bit on the person learning to take responsibility. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, as long as the person putting out the material is not putting it out in a, you know, like a false sense. Like this is material to get started, and we're thinking it's going to take you, you know, this percentage of the way, and it's on you to finish. So. I love all these resources as long as they're not trying to make themselves out to be something that they aren't.、Mm -hmm. So, is there anything else that we should、uh, dig into or talk about? What is the JavaScript Jabber audience interested in? Well, I think we've、uh, talked about most of those issues. I think the security was probably one, and then just JavaScript.com and Code School. A lot of people have learned to code through those. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah, please do give us your feedback if you have any, you know, questions about Code School, or、uh, if you see any of those、uh, security bugs, <laughs> or、uh, you want us to create a course. You can go on there and、uh, vote for which courses you want us to do next.、Um, definitely keep an eye out for that. Oh, and、uh, if you、uh, need to learn regular expressions, you got to check out our latest course on Regex. It is it is awesome. I want to check it out and find out how much I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you're bound to take something away from it. I know I did. I use regexes like they're going out of style, but I, I, I still feel, regexes are like them. You can spend ten years using them and still like only know ten percent. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
Yeah, I remember back in the day, I had an earlier job at a company called MP3.com back in the day. They were a big Pearl shop. And I remember that's where I really got exposed to regex because I had to do all of these file parsing on the command line. It's also where I earned my Unix command line chops, throwing around commands like grep and sed. I think I use sed a lot with uh, regular expressions to like parse through these massive tab-delimited files of email addresses to inject them into the database. Does it teach people like AJ that it's regex instead of regex? <laughs> yeah, I was tempted to say something about that. I only recently learned about that as well, that it is regex, not regex. Look, I don't care what you say. It's a GIF. It's regex. It's OSX. That's okay? right. It's not, it's not my fault if the people that created it did it wrong. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we love our regular expressions. We don't. <laughs> regular. <laughs> We don't call it VAR, we call it VAR. <laughs> All right, AJ. Whatever All you right. say. All right, Thanks. well, should we should we go ahead and do some picks? Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Braintree. So go check them out at braintreepayments.com slash javascriptjabber. If you need any kind of credit card processing or payment processing in general, they're a great way to go, and we appreciate them sponsoring the show. This episode is sponsored by TrackJS. Let's face it, errors cost you money, you lose customers, server resources, and time to them. Wouldn't it be nice if someone told you how and when they happened so you could fix them before they cost you big time? You may have this on your backend application code, but what about your front-end JavaScript? It's time to check out TrackJS. It tracks errors and usage and helps you find bugs before your customers even report them. Go check them out at trackjs.com slash jsjabber. This episode is sponsored by CodeSchool. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, CodeSchool has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can sign up at codeschool.com slash JavaScript Jabber. I totally have it. Can I go first? Sure. Mr. Robot. Anyone else watching Mr. Robot? No. Oh my god. Like, now, like, if you are a programmer and you liked Fight Club, maybe, a little bit, like... Mr. Robot is a show on USA, I believe, and it is, oh, it is so amazing what they did. They paid tribute to programmers in in a huge way, and it's very Fight Club-esque, very anti-establishment, and anybody who's a programmer is going to absolutely love it. Check it out. All right. Amy, do you want to give us some picks? So this probably be maybe old news by the time this comes out, but I've had a ton of fun over the past week looking at the hashtag floating around on Twitter, the I look like an engineer. I don't know. It's just been a ton of fun to filter by that and look through all these pictures. So uh, if you haven't looked at that, you should. It's kind of cool. And then in our emails going back and forth, we contemplated uh, talking a little bit about WebAssembly. So I started looking into that a little bit. And I was going to pick a Medium article that's an interview with Brandon Ike that I thought was a pretty good starting point. And that's it. Yeah, we should get him back on to talk about WebAssembly. AJ, what are your picks? So I have had a Raspberry Pi 2 for a, probably a month or two now. And I, it's just been sitting around because I've been using my regular Raspberry Pi for doing the stuff I'm doing. 
But I started actually doing development on the Raspberry Pi 2 and switching over a bunch of stuff to use Node Cluster. By the way, don't ever store a variable in memory. Always use something like Redis because when you go to use Node in multiple processes, it's no bueno. Um, but anyway, and the Raspberry Pi 2 is it's faster than I thought it would be. It's, I think part of it's because it's got a lot more memory. Instead of 256 megs, it's got a gig. And then it's got the four cores, so when Node starts up, whatever else it's doing, like Node has one core to start up on. So um, I'm I'm enjoying development on the Raspberry Pi 2, and it's a little less frustrating because it's a little less slow. Awesome. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pick Periscope, which is the... I don't know exactly what to call it. It's kind of an, uh, a broadcast thing that uh, Twitter bought. You basically get on the app, you fire up a video, and then you just talk to your phone. And uh, people can get on. It posts a link to Twitter, and then you know people can get on, and they can talk back to you, chat back to you. Um, and that all shows up on the screen. And then they can also send you hearts by tapping the screen. And so if they really like what you're talking about, or they like, you know, your idea, or you can ask them to give you hearts if there's something that you want them to, you know, you want that kind of immediate feedback on something. Anyway, I I really enjoy it, and uh, I plan on doing some more Periscopes. So if you want to hear a little bit more about what I've got going on, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to save the videos. Uh, They disappear off of Periscope after 24 hours. Anyway, I'll I'll be doing that over the next uh, few weeks. So go ahead and follow me on Periscope. Um, you can get the app on Android and iOS. You can watch the videos online, but you can't interact with them the same way. So anyway, those are my picks. And uh, thanks again, Greg, for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you. All you guys, thanks. If people want to find out what you're up to these days or, or follow you, what, what are the best ways to do that? Yeah, you can just follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm just Greg Pollock on Twitter. That would be the best way to do it. That's Greg with an extra G on the end. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again. We'll wrap up the show, and we'll catch you on next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.